Matthew chapter 12, starting in verse 22, and I would remind you that there is much in this life that lasts, there is much in this life that will pass away. The word of the Lord will stand forever. And this was written that you might hear even this day. Then a demon-oppressed man who was blind and mute was brought to him. This is Jesus. And he healed him. So that the man spoke and saw. And all the people were amazed. And said, can this be the son of David? But when the Pharisees heard it, they said, it's only by Beelzebul, the prince of demons, that this man casts out demons. Knowing their thoughts. He said to them, every kingdom divided against itself is laid to waste. And no city or house divided against itself will stand. And if Satan cast out Satan, he's divided against himself. How then will his kingdom stand? And if I cast out demons by Beelzebul, by whom do, you, do your sons cast them out? Therefore, they will be your judges. But if it's by the Spirit of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Or how can someone enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man? Then indeed he may plunder his house. Whoever is not with me is against me. And whoever does not gather with me scatters. Therefore I tell you, every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven people, but the blasphemy against the Spirit will not be forgiven. And whoever speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven, but whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven, either in this age or in the age to come. Either make the tree good, and its fruit good, or make the tree bad, and its fruit bad, for the tree is known by its fruit. You brood of vipers! How can you speak good when you are evil? For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. The good person out of his good treasure brings forth good. And the evil person out of his evil treasure brings forth evil. I tell you on the day of judgment, people will give account for every careless word they speak. For by your words you will be justified, and by your words you will be condemned. And some of the scribes and Pharisees answered him saying, Teacher, we wish a sign to see a sign from you. But he answered them, and an evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh will rise up in the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And behold, something greater than Jonah is here. The queen of the south will rise up in the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon. And behold, something greater than Solomon is here. 
When the unclean spirit has gone out of a person, it passes through waterless places seeking rest but finds none. And then it says, I will return to my house from which I came. And when it comes, it finds the house empty, swept, and put in order. Then it goes and brings with it seven other spirits, more evil than itself, and they enter and dwell there. And the last state of that person is worse than the first. So will it be with this evil generation. While he was still speaking to the people, behold, his mother and his brothers stood outside asking to speak to him. But he replied to the man who told him, Who is my mother? And who are my brothers? And stretching out his hand toward his disciples, he said, Here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we do praise you that together we may now come to your word and we ask, O God, that your spirit would give understanding and faith and hope. And as we have seen you gather your people already in receiving all of these delightful people, O Lord, would you please now perfect. Sanctify us, make us holy for Christ's sake. Amen. What makes a fact interesting? Have you ever thought about this? This is one of those things that I think many of us have probably never really spent a lot of time thinking about. But being that we live in a generation that is a time that is inundated with facts, we don't really oftentimes pause and consider Right now we have all of these interesting facts, things that we kind of fill our minds with that absolutely have no pertinence to us. It's one of the byproducts of growing up in an internet age. You can see everything and know, not everything, but so many things that are absolutely pointless and and useless. At some point though, I think for many of us, uh, the most interesting facts, at least prior to the arrival of the internet, were the facts that demanded action. That required you to do something with it. Perhaps they're not the most fun facts. But they're the, the ones that you know, kind of engage us immediately. All right, it's the difference between me walking by Austin up here in the front row. And chucking him a hymnal and just letting the hymnal land in his lap. Or me walking past Austin and chucking a ginormous spider. And just letting the spider land in his lap. When he catches the hymnal, and was like, okay, Michael's being weird again. That's not atypical. He's my intern. I'm his boss. He sees all the weird. If I chuck a spider, well, you're going to see a very different response, aren't you? I get to hear a little bit of a scream. Why? Because the spider demands action. It requires us to do something with it. It's something that kind of provokes that deep-seated, visceral gut response. I have to act on what I know. Now again, recognizing that most of us in the room are not of Jewish backgrounds, uh, many of these passages in the Gospels, we kind of lose the significance uh, of how much it demands their activity. 
Largely because our emotions don't match the emotion of, of the original listeners. And chapter 12 would have been one of those passages where uh, the way that Matthew's kind of put it together so that as we read it, we see the first half of it. It's like that, the gigantic spider being dropped in your lap. I don't know what's happening, but I know I don't like it. And I know something has to happen. Something has to be different after this experience than how it begun. And here in chapter 12, Jesus has interacted with the scribes, the Pharisees, the Jews of the time, those in the community. And what he has done is proclaimed himself to be Lord of the Sabbath. Which again, for most of us, we immediately go, well, that's a cool name. Right? That's a name that I've sung about Jesus all the time. I've even mispronounced it when I think I'm singing it in a mighty fortress. That's not what it is, but I misread it every time. No, for the Jews, what they would have understood is when Jesus is saying he's Lord of the Sabbath, he is saying he is the eternal God right in their midst. He's the one who made the Sabbath. He's the agent of creation. He is God Almighty. And out of all the things that the Jews could have heard that they would have cared about or not cared about, this is pretty much top of the list. A man saying in their midst that he is the triune God, he's the Lord of the Sabbath. Well, what do we do with that? Well, verse 14, you got to see how the unbelievers handled it. They, uh, the Pharisees immediately go out and they begin to conspire against him. They seek to destroy him. We cannot have a man saying that he is our God. We cannot live with that. We cannot handle that. He has to go away. Well, the rest of the chapter lays out what It looks like for a believer to respond, not, uh, again, conspiring against him, uh, seeking to destroy him, but instead, uh, what a robust response to Christ Jesus looks like. What, what, What does it mean to react to the fact that Jesus is God? We're going to, Lord willing, very quickly, see five points, just very quickly, five features or responses that God's people will have to this reality that Jesus is God. First, and we're going to handle a paragraph at a time, verses uh, 12 through 32. We're going to see that a, a, a right response to the knowledge of Christ, a right response to the divinity of Jesus is to be filled with His Spirit. Interestingly, as Jesus is going along here, he heals a demon-oppressed man. And this man is miserable. Again, you remember uh, demonic oppression is an awful thing. as the demons work from the inside out, forcing a person to do the things they don't want to do. We saw it much more aggressively there than perhaps we regularly do here in Fort Mill, though uh, certainly this sort of thing still happens today. And Jesus uh, heals this man, casts the demon out, sends it away, and the people begin to wonder. They ask this question, can this be the son of David? Now, what an interesting question. Jesus has just told them that he's Lord of the Sabbath, and they begin to ask, well, maybe he's the Messiah. Well, yeah, he just said he was God. But if if you want to also pin Messiah there, okay, fine. Yes, he is both. 
But the Pharisees hear it, verse 14, and they can't handle that. They can't handle the crowds beginning to think that Jesus is the Messiah. They don't want them believing that Jesus is God. And so uh, they begin to kind of sow the seeds of of distrust, a a, a disseminating a false narrative, a, a campaign of misinformation. Well, you know how he does this, right? You know how he's able to get rid of these demons, right? He's using a bigger demon. He's using Beelzebul, the prince of demons, to cast out all of these lesser demons. He's taking a greater evil and using it to uh, get rid of a lesser evil. Jesus, interestingly, stands up and uh, very quickly, in just a matter of sentences, points out that their entire argument is absurd. A kingdom divided against itself is laid to waste. A city or a house divided against itself will not stand. That doesn't make sense. It doesn't make sense to take a greater evil to cast out a lesser evil. They're both on the same team. They're both working toward the same goal. A a greater evil and a lesser evil are all working toward evil. It doesn't make sense that you would then use evil against itself. In fact, actually, verse 28, Jesus lays out what his ministry is like, what his kingdom is like, and it's filled with the Spirit of God. That Jesus sends his Spirit and his Spirit indwells his people so that our life, if we are in Christ, is marked by the presence of the Holy Spirit working within us. If it's by the Spirit of God that I do this, well, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Why? Because the Spirit of God is a marker of the kingdom of Christ. Everywhere that He rules and reigns in the hearts of men and women, boys and girls, His Spirit goes. All of those lovely people that were up here, all of the ones who took vows, have already met with the session. They've told us their testimony. And what we're looking for is the marks that the Spirit is there. Because if we see the Spirit, guess what? Jesus is reigning in their life. Now, it's not brought to completion yet. It's not fully perfected yet. That's part of what he uses the church for. But if you see the Spirit, you know that that's where Jesus is reigning. It's a mark. Of his ministry. Now interestingly he gives an example of this. He he uses burglary. Jesus knowing crime in some fashion says well how do you rob somebody that's really strong? If there's somebody that's really strong you don't just walk into their house and say hey give me all your stuff. That doesn't work. Instead, what you have to do is you have to tie up the strong man so that he can't fight back. And then once he's tied up, well, then you can do whatever you want. Likewise, if the devil's already at work in in, in people, you can't just say, well, just go away. You need a greater power. You need the Spirit of God working in the lives of his people. And in doing so, you see the reign of Christ everywhere that he goes. It's why, interestingly, he builds there at the end against this great sin, the grievous sin of blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. And interestingly, you get those terrible statements at the end, verse 32 and such, that it will not be forgiven. Out of all the sins, that every sin can be forgiven except for the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. 
And if you grew up in one of those perhaps more pietistic sort of branches of the church, you might have grown up being taught to be fearful that you yourself would have committed blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. Like, oh no, have I done it and I don't know? Have I done it and I'm not going to be forgiven? Maybe perhaps, I know for some of us, the background that we grew up, the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit was treated very much like the mark of the beast. Right? Is this some way I'm going to go to hell by accident? And I didn't even know I was going to. Now what Jesus is saying here is, look, God's people, as a mark of His reign in their life, are going to have the Spirit actively involved. The only sin that's not forgiven is the sin that is saying to the Spirit, you are not welcome here. You cannot come into my life. You do not belong as a part of me. Why? Because I do not belong as a part of you. And it's very core, it's a denial of the reign of Christ and a denial of His power in our lives and a denial of welcoming Him in to work within us. That first response that we see of, of interacting with Christ and His kingdom is to actively try to cultivate and, and nurture the Spirit's ministry within our lives. Just a simple question. How does the Spirit, how do I help the Spirit work inside me? Right? If He's God and He has His own perfect plan, how do I help the Spirit work inside me? Have you ever thought about that? One simple short answer, and you probably don't think about this, but the Spirit does not have a voice of His own. He doesn't get words of His own. Interestingly, all throughout the Scriptures, He only uses the words of Christ. So interestingly, the first thing you can do in order to have the Spirit work in your life is to have words for Him to use. If you're not ingesting the book, funny enough, you're not going to hear from Him very frequently because He doesn't have the things to say. Secondly, interestingly, pulling, uh, actively pursuing sin quiets His ministry in our midst. Uh, there is uh, a great reality that sometimes when we actively pursue our sins, sometimes the Spirit gets quiet for a season. And perhaps we need to contemplate that. All right, so first, uh, we get to see that uh, what are the, the responses that we uh, are laboring toward in light of this divinity of Jesus first is uh, we're laboring to be filled with the Spirit. Uh, second, we labor to produce good fruit. Uh, Jesus immediately kind of jumps here in the way Matthew has this to uh, jump to this illustration of trees. Either make the tree, this ESV translation is absolutely perfect. It's excellent, by the way. Make the tree good and its fruit. Or make the tree bad and its fruit bad. A, a tree is known by its fruit. It, it's saying, look, the, the nature of a person determines the, the kind of fruit they will produce. Verse 35, a good person produces a good treasure, or out of his good treasure produces good fruit. A bad person out of his bad treasure produces evil fruit. It's uh, a byproduct of the condition that we are. Now, the second, I mean, kind of application here then is if you have Christ reigning in your life, you're actively commanded to go produce good fruit. If Jesus has already come in and transformed you using his kind of tree analogy, if he's already made you a good tree, go be as good of a tree as you can be. Produce as much good fruit as you possibly can. 
be as lovely and as marvelous and as delightful a tree as you possibly can be. Now again, that's only by the work of the Spirit within you. It's only because you've already been transformed. It's only because Jesus is so merciful that He freely shares with us His power to do this, but labor at it. And I would, again, kind of make a aside here. I think sometimes Christians kind of, how to say this, we forget that godliness is work. Like we kind of just expect good deeds to flow from us, which they will. But we forget that the vast majority of the time when the Bible speaks of it, it speaks of it like work. Like go actively work at doing good things. Now, certainly that means like, you know, go actively read your Bible. It's the beginning of the year. Great. Start. Good. Start in Matthew. Read all the way through the New Testament. But beyond that, to actively work at being gentle. Men, when was the last time you actively thought, you know what, I'm going to work at being gentle with my children. I'm going to be gentle to them. Because that's what the Spirit is. And that's what my Savior is. And that's what my Father is. Jesus just described Himself in verse 20 of this chapter. as one of those gentle portraits you can possibly imagine. Or kindness. Or I'm going to work at being faithful. Again, endeavoring. Now, you can only do this by the Spirit's power in your life. But working to produce good fruit. The third thing that we see here is an active effort to cultivate faith. Again, interestingly, many of us, we've kind of thought about faith from that perspective of it. It just sort of happens to us. Like, oh, we've been saved, the Spirit's in our life, and then now I just believe. We forget that faith is a thing that is absolutely intentionally cultivated. That's how it's spoken of all throughout the Scriptures. But thirdly, we see it here in this section on dealing with Jonah, uh, verse 38, some of the scribes and the Pharisees answer him and say, well, teacher, we wish to see a sign from you. Which is the most asinine question ever. Because at this point in Jesus' ministry, he's really only doing two things. He's teaching and performing signs. Everywhere he goes, he's performing signs. He's casting out demons everywhere he goes. He's performing miracles everywhere he goes. In this chapter alone, he's already healed a man with a withered hand. And he's already cast out a demon plus many other miracles. So interestingly, their question is a a very stupid question. It's very foolish. And that's because they don't actually mean it. They're not intending it. This is why they get the response they do from Jesus. An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign. But no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. What he's challenging here is saying, look, for those that are constantly saying, look, I know Jesus is at work all around me, but I refuse to believe that until he does X, Y, Z. That's not good. That's not good at all. In fact, the sign that is given here is the sign of the prophet Jonah, that Jesus would die. On the third day, he would be raised again by his own power. He's using Jonah as kind of a a metaphor, as a, a type of Christ to showcase that 
Jesus would do something amazing. And interestingly, even then they wouldn't believe, would they? They wouldn't believe. And therefore you have this in verse 41, this portrait of all of the people of Nineveh serving as witnesses against those who don't believe. All they had was Jonah preaching what is perhaps the worst sermon preached in human history. And the entire town is basically moved to repentance. They here will serve as witnesses against those who have seen so much more. Then you have in verse 42, the the queen of Sheba, the queen of the south who comes up. um, The impression we get by our best understanding is that she's not even invited by Solomon. She just hears of his wisdom and says, I have to go see what his God is doing. And she is intrigued and goes up and visits Solomon. And again, she will serve as a testimony against these people who just cannot believe even when they see. And I would contend again that many of us as Christians, perhaps we've been for a long time, we forget that faith is an, it's an active word. It's an activity, again, that it has to be cultivated. You know, some are given great faith, they're given that as a spiritual gift, that it makes it easy for them, but many of us, that's not the reality for us. We don't always believe in God's goodness. We don't always believe in God's wisdom, that He knows what He's doing. We don't always believe. And so the challenge, I would say, for those of us that are like that, is to to actively endeavor to trust Him more. To believe in His goodness more. To believe in His faithfulness more. I mean, it's so easy for us to have pity parties. And honestly, you realize the vast majority of the time that you have a pity party, it's simply because you're not believing in God's goodness. And I'm not getting it. Or my way. And the bottom lip comes out. Actively cultivating faith, belief in God's character... Uh, fourthly, very quickly here, I'm cultivating uh, resistance of evil with gospel power. Again, a resistance of evil with gospel power. Jesus seems to, on the surface at least, change gears here in verse 43 pretty aggressively. Uh, I don't think it's as much of one as it looks like on the surface. What he's doing is working out what life is like with the Spirit. If in the first section you're filled with the Spirit, the second section you're going to produce good fruit, the third section you're going to be cultivating a robust faith, a trust in who God is, well, the byproduct of that will be that you will actively resist uh, evil. And Jesus here tells a parable to help us understand what this active resistance of evil looks like. There are those that don't like the evil in their lives and they try to pull themselves up by their bootstraps and they get set for their New Year's resolutions and they find their new self-help book and they get on their new program or plan or whatever it is to make their life a better place. And you know what? It works for a time. It's amazing what kind of bad habits people can get rid of. Even unbelievers can get rid of uh, just for a season. But Jesus in parable form explains it's like throwing out a, uh, an unclean spirit. It's like throwing a demon out of a person's life. They go out, they go wandering around, they don't find a place to stay. And they go, well, you know what? Let's go back and check that guy's 
house. Let's go back and check his life. And they go back and what do they find? A person who's thrown out the demon, this rotten tenant. They've cleaned their uh, soul up. They've made it nice and uh, tidy and everything's in its place. And uh, it's a wonderful place to live. So what does the demon do? Goes and finds buddies and is like, hey, let's go back and do it again. He cleaned it up. It's an even nicer place to live. What he's portraying here is a person who's trying to find victory against uh, sin or temptation or evil apart from the Spirit of God. If you try to conquer evil in your life by yourself, all you end up doing is making it a better place for greater evil. A much better place for greater evil. Uh, What happens is it goes something like this. Let's say you want to get rid of the sin of lying. And so a person who's not filled with the Spirit of God says, well, I'm going to stop lying. I'm going to tell the truth always. They make a commitment to themselves that they're going to tell the truth forever and ever as best they can. And so they stop actively lying for a time. Which then gives them a sense of pride about that. And then they maybe perhaps start thinking a little bit less of their friends and peers who do lie all of the time. Look at how weak they are. They couldn't clean up their life. I've cleaned up my life. They haven't cleaned up their life. And what have you done just right there? You've invited two greater sins in. Conceit. An evil sense of judgment. Instead, what God says here is, look, the people of God, the only way we have victory is not in our own ability, our own merits, but in the Spirit who's working in the lives of His people. And you think, well, man, that's got to be hard. Yeah, absolutely it is. That's why you have the Spirit. But interestingly, how does it end? He gives us another mechanism to help us in this journey together. He gives us the family of God. Again, here in chapter 12, we see Jesus uh, forsaking our little kind of uh, weak Uh, mushy version of Jesus that we've built up from our uh, overly nice culture. Verse 34, he's already called them a brood of vipers. Verse uh, 39, he's already to their face called them an evil and adulterous generation. Here in verse 46, 47, 48, 49, 50, he has this most unbelievably emotionally grueling experience with his mother and his brothers. His family shows up to help him and he, he basically disavows knowledge. That's not my mom. That's not my brothers. Who's my family? Who are my people? Well, my people are those that know the kingdom of God. That know my Father in heaven. You're right, this uh, idea of gathering and perfecting, that the idea of being perfected as the people of God is, it's a hard thing, particularly if we work at it. Now, if you just float along like a lump on a log floating down the river, well, guess what? You're not going to grow very much, and it will just be uncomfortable and unpleasant. But if you actively are working to grow, you know what? You're going to need help. And it's interesting that the Lord provides that here in the end of chapter 12 with his people, which you just made that point as we received new members, didn't we? If you want to grow, you want to walk with God, if you want to be blessed in his kingdom, you have to have the church to do it. Again, John Calvin, in a way that perhaps might even make many Protestants uncomfortable, he says, if God is our father, the church is our mother. And that's Calvin. Oh, you're like, that sounds very Roman Catholic. No, Calvin's point was, is if you're going to grow and do well, you have to do it with the people of God. That's why here we talk about all the time, word, sacrament, prayer, 
fellowship. You have to do it with the people of God. All of those are corporate activities. It's why my great concern and why I've talked about it so frequently, my great concern over COVID, is that we've watched an American church be moved increasingly from corporate to increasingly individual. And that is to our detriment. Because interestingly, Jesus explains all of this is designed to function together. May it be that we would together grow in Christ as a body even now. Let's pray. Father, thank you for these rich blessings given to us in Jesus. Oh Lord, would your spirit be pleased to work within us even now, even this morning, for Christ's sake. Amen.